Well, when we look into the face of even uh, folks that uh, we have a, a troubled relationship with, even, even folks that we might describe as our enemy, when we really look uh, into their eyes, when we really get to know them, when we really walk a little bit in their shoes, we realize, man, there are, there are lots of similarities here. You know, there are, we, we look more like them than we might otherwise realize. And, and so sometimes it's, it's hard, I guess, to uh, figure out you know, who the enemy really is, who the bad guy really is. In the movies, it's not so, right? I mean, we, we grew up understanding that uh, the bad guy wore the black cowboy hat. We, we could find out who the bad guys were, who the villains were in, in, in any movie. When my daughters were uh, younger, one of their favorite movies was The Lion King. And when you watch The Lion King, you, you know right away as you meet the characters which lion is the bad guy lion and which lion is the good guy lion. Take a look at this. So you can figure out right away by the demeanor, by the snarl, by the roar, uh, which which lion is, is the bad guy in that movie. It's, it's obvious. When I was a kid, you know, I was a fan of superheroes. My favorite superhero was, Bat, was Batman. Batman's kind of arch enemy was this guy by the name of the Joker. And uh, I think we have a picture of one of the actors who portrayed the Joker in a an old movie now, and uh, and it's easy to tell just by the, from the appearance, you know, who the bad guy is in that movie. Uh, uh, some uh, fun facts about the Joker it was based on this German actor in 1928, which just makes me sad for this German actor that you know he walked around looking like somebody who might inspire the Joker. That's too bad for him. And uh, so, if you've ever asked yourself what German cinema has contributed to society. I think we've answered that today. Now you know. Uh, you know, this guy named Cesar Romero played the Joker in the, in the 1960s, this actor. Uh, and he had, a, he had a, a mustache that was sort of his trademark mustache. Some of you might be uh, old enough to remember Cesar Romero. I won't point fingers at who I think that might be. But you know his trademark mustache. And in the, in the, for the TV show, he refused to shave the mustache. So they just put the white makeup over the mustache and all in that 1960s version. Kind of ironic for us this morning is the, the fact that uh, Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, has voiced the Joker in Batman cartoons for about the last 20 years. I say that's ironic for us because, you know, my son is a Star Wars fan and the, maybe the most famous uh, villain of all time is Darth Vader in those movies. And, and maybe you've seen Star Wars. There was a scene at one point in Star Wars when a character like uh, Luke Skywalker, you know, was using the force. And so he got very contemplative and he said, Vader is on that ship. And I'm not sure if this was in the original script, but I imagine that one of his colleagues, one of his friends like Han Solo might ask, uh, how do you know that? And he would respond, this was in the original script, I think it got edited out of the movie, he said, I can hear his theme music from here. <laughs> right? We, we know this theme music.
we won't play like all eight minutes of that song. But when you hear that music, when you hear the Imperial March, you know that the bad guy is coming. It's easy to pick out in the movies who the enemies are, who the villains are. We deal with this every day. We deal with these kinds of relationships every day. Relationships that for one reason or another are really difficult for us to deal with. And maybe they're not as obvious as wearing white makeup or a mask or theme music as they walk into the office. But we all experience these relationships and we all deal with them. Perhaps they are people that we want to be really close to, but for whatever reason we are not. An estranged sibling, a, a, an adult child, or, or a, a spouse even, a longtime friend. Uh, somebody that we, we want to know really well and we want to be close to, but we've, for whatever reason that, that relationship is broken and severed and it's just really, really difficult. For, for some of us, it's a relationship that we never wanted to be. Maybe that's in the bo- a boss or a coworker or a neighbor who moved in or, or whatever. And that relationship, for whatever reason, is just sort of a thorn in our side. We all experience these relationships, and we all have to figure out, you know, how do we navigate these? And as followers of Christ, we know that we're built for relationships. We're built for this vertical relationship with our, our Heavenly Father. And Jesus makes that possible through a relationship with Him. So we know God when we know Jesus, and and we're built for that relationship. But because we're built for that relationship, He designed us for relationships with other people as well. And even those difficult relationships, we're designed to make a difference in those relationships, and we can absolutely be a positive influence. We can be a positive difference maker in all of our relationships, even our most difficult relationships. And I think as we put these relationships under review and take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, we're going to learn two steps that Jesus teaches us that will help us to navigate our way through those most difficult relationships, to be a positive influence, to be a positive difference maker in those uh, really hard, thorn in the side, difficult relationships, even with folks that we might characterize as enemies. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're going to begin with verse 38. We're going to work our way through verse 48 this morning. Maybe you're using a device, your phone. You can find this scripture in the YouVersion app. Better yet, you can download the Wallula app if you haven't already, and you can find the, uh, the scripture reference there as well as the outline that's in your welcome packet and your bulletin. You can follow along and fill in the blanks as we go to these two steps in Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38, this is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, we're going to explore this text in in two steps that I think Jesus teaches us that helps us to navigate our most uh, difficult relationships. Step number one is that we can choose not to retaliate. We can choose not to retaliate. Jesus begins this section of teaching just like he has the the other uh, kind of areas of our our life that we've put under review recently. He begins by by going back to a command that that is found in the Old Testament in the teachings of the, the rabbis. In verse 38 it says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So if you go back to the Old Testament, if you go back to the law, then then uh, you can read about this command in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, or Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19 through 20, or Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. All through the law, you'll hear this standard kind of put in place. And if you remember last week when we talked about marriage and how important marriage was and how, how much, you know, that Jesus wants uh, us to stay radically committed in that marriage relationship, we talked about the fact that divorce still existed all the way back to, to Moses. You know, I, for as long as there have been marriages, basically, there have been some kind of, of divorce. And, and we talked a little bit how, about how that divorce was sort of this last uh, place safety net for people involved in those relationships that were, were difficult. And, and really, when we read eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we're reading the same sort of statement. Uh, in, in the law, this was meant to be sort of the, the limit that you could go to in seeking retribution, the kind of the limit you could go to when, when you retaliate. Well, Jesus is going to talk about three examples, and in those examples, you know, if you think about somebody slapping you across the face, it would be our natural response to respond in kind, right? I think that that's our natural instinct is to retaliate. And all the Old Testament scriptures teaching is that, well, there's a limit. If you're slapped in the face, then the limit would be a slap back. You know, it's, it's not okay to, to, you know, go beyond that. There's kind of this ceiling to this retaliation. And that was true in their civil proceedings and their court of law. That was true in their personal relationships. The problem is, is that we're people. And people tend to go as close and as near and even surpassed, if we can, sort of the limits that are placed upon us. It's our natural instinct to retaliate. And that's true no matter who we are. I, I, know, I know two sweet, lovely, beautiful teenage girls. And you've seen them walk through the hallways here. And I won't mention their names, but they ran into my kitchen, which would be weird except they're my daughters. And they ran into my kitchen the other day, and they were, they were kind of yelling at each other. And, and, uh, and they ran in, and one said, she sat on me. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And, and they're, kind of, they're kind of slapping each other and punching each other. And I said, hey, what, what is the deal? And, and it was so easy to see siblings retaliating against each other, right? This Thanksgiving, you're going to have two 70-plus-year-old uncles in the corner wrestling each other because it doesn't go away. You know, when we think about our relationship with with our siblings, this is really easy for us to understand. It's natural for us to retaliate, and, and but we can choose not to. And in fact, Jesus goes on when he offers this command. He, he points us back to the law and says, this is God's command, but this is what I say. He's going to offer some clarification when he says in verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Whoa. 
I mean, this is, I think about it for just a minute, because we read it and we think, yeah, Jesus, you know, Jesus says stuff like this. But this is a radical statement, isn't it? You think of a few weeks ago when we talked about our thought life, and we talked about how temptation creeps in, and we need to be radical. When Jesus said, hey, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Well, he's really saying, I want you to be radical about sin in your life. I want you to be radical about the elimination of sin in your life. Last week, we talked about marriage and divorce and the commitment that's required there and the commitment that's expected there. And and Jesus is really saying, I want you to be radical in your devotion, in your commitment, in your most important relationships. In your marriage, be radical about that commitment. You know, and this week, Jesus is saying, I want you to be radical in your love and even your most difficult relationships. Do not resist an evil person. And that's a radical statement. It's so radical that I think we have to talk. Before we, before we discuss what does Jesus mean, I think we have to discuss what he doesn't mean. All right? Because it's a radical statement. And I think we can, we can explore these three uh, illustrations, which we will do. But when we try to take those three illustrations and we kind of spread them out over all of society and society's issues, then maybe we begin to speak for Jesus in a way that he didn't speak. Maybe we uh, treat this text unfairly. And so we need to be careful. Let's explore first what Jesus didn't mean. I don't think that Jesus advocates for Christians to submit to, you know, torture or to be in an abusive relationship or anything like that. All right? I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, if you're being hurt, if you're being injured, if you're being abused, you know, turn the other cheek and stay away. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think Jesus is is directly addressing pacifism or or a just war concept. We can maybe talk about that in other places in the New Testament, but I don't think that's what this text is saying. I don't think uh, he's restricting Christian intervention on the behalf of an abused third party. You know, he's not saying, hey, you know, you you have to look away. You can't do anything about that. I don't think he's forbidding self-defense. I don't think he's contravening retaliation by the state. I don't think this is a statement about the state at large and what they should or should not do to protect their citizens. So I I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, but I do think there are standards and examples that he speaks about in our interpersonal relationships that we desperately need to live out. He gives some real practical and difficult advice through the means of these three examples. The first one is at the end of verse 39. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You you need to understand that in the first century, Jesus was living in this honor-shame society. Everything had to do with honor. And they believed that this this was a resource that could absolutely run out. And so, in other words, if I received some honor, somebody else lost honor. And so this was, this was how they negotiated everything. This is how they went through life. This was most important to them. Perhaps in our culture, we see folks maybe trading, you know, honor for money. In, in the first century, in Jesus' culture, in the, the culture of the Middle East in the first century, they would, they would absolutely trade uh, money for honor. They, they would give away money in order to receive honor. That, it was that important to them. And so a slap to the cheek was just a personal affront. It was an insult. It was one of the ways they might challenge somebody who was in a higher place or a more honorable position than them. 
And this slap to the face was, was an absolute insult. And you think about the majority of people are right-handed, so if you go as a right-handed person to slap somebody on the right cheek, that's a backhanded slap, which was an even greater insult. Jesus is talking about sort of personal confrontation, personal insult in, in relationship. And he's saying, hey, you can choose not to retaliate when you are insulted. When you're personally confronted by, by insult, and, and uh, you can choose not to, not to retaliate. He goes on to offer another example in verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And so this is uh, sets in a, in a courtroom, and, and if you sued somebody in, the, in, in Jesus' day, then they would require as collateral in that case. This seems weird to me. It seems a little backwards, but this was, this was their culture. This is how it worked. They uh, would wear an, an uh, undergarment, an inside garment. that would be like our jeans and T-shirt, okay? If you take that sort of idea, a, a suit maybe that you wore and then an overcoat. And so they had a coat. Uh, on top of that, and they required as collateral your inner garment. I'm, like I said, that seems backward to me, but in, in their culture, that outer garment was sort of an inalienable possession. Uh, you might think of like bankruptcy in our society today. There's ways to sort of save the home, and, and that house is sort of a little bit of that inalienable possession. And that's what they believed about this outer garment. And so when Jesus said, hey, if somebody sues you, and they expect that inner garment as collateral, you provide that outer garment as well. And so Jesus talks about sort of this this personal uh, insults and, and, and we can choose not to retaliate. When we're wronged or somebody expects something from us uh, financially, we can choose not to retaliate in our, in our finances and our personal security. And finally, in verse 41, Jesus offers this last example. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, this would have been a serious insult, especially to, to Jewish folks living under Roman rule in Israel. The Roman soldiers had the authority, they had the right to order an ordinary uh, person to, to carry their gear, to carry their military stuff with them for a certain distance. And Jesus says if a soldier requires you to carry their gear for one mile, then you, you go that next mile as well. Well, it's where our phrase, you know, go the extra mile comes from. And so even with politics and kind of government intrusion, Jesus says we can choose not to retaliate. Now, when you think about these three areas of our lives, when you think about how we see them lived out in our culture today, I want you to, to consider whether we practice, you know, this, this principle of non-retaliation. You know, when we're confronted personally, when sort of our honor is dinged, and we're insulted personally, what's our natural inclination? Do we choose not to retaliate? When we're hitting the wallet somehow, and we think somebody has wronged us financially, whether that's, you, you know, a, a, a miscalculation on a debt or whatever the deal is, uh, how do we respond? And, and finally, in our political climate today, man, when somebody voices an opinion that is not our opinion, you know, how do we react in that realm? You know, how do we react in, in just simple things in our life that are way less serious than, than maybe these examples would have been in the first century to these folks? We can choose not to retaliate. Uh, 
I want you to think about what, what good it does to retaliate anyway. I watched the Chiefs play uh, football last Sunday afternoon, and if you watched that game, you saw at the end of the game, the Chiefs' two best defensive players were kicked out of the game for uh, unsportsmanlike conduct. They, they had to leave. They couldn't play the last quarter or so of, of that game. And uh, it's because they, they chose to retaliate. You know, one guy tried to punt somebody, and the other guy, you know, tackled somebody out of bounds and then kind of taunted him over. They, and, and you watch the tape of this game, there's all kinds of funny memes and, and video clips during this game because they for sure weren't the first people to do something that was unsportsmanlike in that game. You know, they had been taunted and, and talked to by the opposing team throughout that game. I'm sure that these guys were just sick and tired of it. They'd been confronted and picked on and chewed on, and so they finally gave in and they retaliated. If you've ever played, you know, any kind of sport, if you've ever been in the competitive situation, you know the old adage is true that the second guy is the one who gets caught. The penalty goes to the second person. You know, it's not that anybody else didn't do anything wrong. It's just that the second person gets caught. And, and I think that principle sort of lives out. I mean, that is a principle we maybe learned playing, you know, football as a kid or soccer or we learned wrestling or whatever it is we participated in. It's a principle that we learned that the second person who retaliates, that, that, you know, that person, the person who retaliates is the one who gets the penalty, who gets the flag, who gets caught. But isn't that sort of true in our lives every day? You know, think about the, the last time you chose to retaliate in some way. How did your situation improve? You know, you're dealing with this relationship that you're trying to restore, and, and you're in the middle of a conversation, and they send a text that you can't believe they sent. How did the text back improve the situation? How did it change? How did it, it restore or heal or, or even make you feel better in the moment, really? You know, whether, whether that retaliation, that situation is in a football game or a divorce court or the workplace, when we choose to retaliate, it rarely advances our position. It rarely puts us in a better place than we were before, if ever. Verse 42 goes on. Jesus says, not only do I want you to choose not to retaliate, I want you to love in a significant way. I want you to, to give to one the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I want you to be a person who lives open-handed and shares the resources I've provided for you. It really brings us to step number two when Jesus uh, teaches us that I want you to choose to love everyone just like I, just like Jesus loved. We can choose to love everyone just like Jesus loved. Verse 43 goes on to say, you have heard that it was said. It's the same setup, right? This is the command. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is unique because in, in Leviticus chapter 19, 18, and other places in, in, uh, in the law, you can read, hey, love your enemy. But nowhere in the Old Testament are you going to read, hate your enemy, or, or love your neighbor. But nowhere are you going to read, uh, hate your enemy. You know, you can maybe uh, make a case that you can infer that from some of the stories that are told in the Old Testament, but you're not going to read that statement, hate your enemy. And so this is, this is probably sort of an extra teaching we talked about several weeks ago, kind of the oral tradition, and, and certainly you can see that lived out in different uh, segments of Judaism in the first century. If you're familiar with sort of this 
Qumran community in the first century. Maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is who that, that the Dead Sea Scrolls are attributed to, is this Qumran community. And they, they had foregone, they'd taken a vow of poverty, they'd lived sort of separated out, they, they were ser- very serious about their relationship with God. And if you were inside that group, man, they cared so much and they loved you. But if you were outside that group, you were outside that group. You know, and, and perhaps they wouldn't say, we, we, we love our neighbors, those inside the group, and we hate our enemies, those outside the group, but they kind of lived it. You know, I, I, I don't know as if uh, too awful much has changed in some groups from the first century to the 21st century, because for sure you can still find this lived out in, in our world today, that if you're inside, we care about you, but if you're outside, then we, we hate you. Jesus goes on, though, to clarify this by saying, but I tell you, love your enemies in verse 44 and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you want to be a part of this family, if you want to look like your Father, then love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, He goes on in in verse uh, 45 and verse 46 to say, I'm going to lead by example here, eh? He he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides for for folks who acknowledge him as God and choose to live after him, and he provides for those who don't. Uh, In verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? he goes on, Jesus goes on to say that God has set this example for you and that others, you know, that it's easy to love somebody who looks like you. It's easy to love somebody who cares about you. It's hard to love somebody who you would describe as an enemy, but that's the standard that Jesus gives to his followers. I want you to love your enemies. I think we have to examine that word love, don't we? Because that's a radical statement too. Love your enemies. Love is a word that certainly in the New Testament can mean different things. In the Greek, it means different things. We, we know this is true in English as well. And uh, when we use the word love, we use it for all kinds of different, different situations. And we probably mean something different in each one of those situations. We, we might say, I love green beans, and I love grandma, and I love my wife. And probably in each one of those relationships, we mean something else. When, when you say, I love green beans, or I love Diet Coke, or I love whatever, you know, you might love green beans, but you put them in that green bean casserole with the onions on top and the, the mushroom soup mixed in, and, and I don't know if that changes you to more love for green beans or less love for green beans, but it probably does something, right? And so once we love those green beans, but the mushroom soup we're not a fan of, and so no longer do we love green beans. It's fleeting. It changes based on what and how it affects us. When we talk about a love for, for grandma, we're talking about that familial, uh, brotherly kind of love, I, I think. And, and man, grandma takes care of us, and I want to hang out with grandma. And then when we think about love for our, our wife or our spouse, and, and probably the first thought that sort of races kind of that romantic sort of love. You know, the warm fuzzies when you first met. And that experience that you had. Well, if you ask Sherry, I mean, it's just ongoing for her. But some of you will just look back to when you first met. We think about that that romantic kind of love. 
You know, when we use the word love often, we associate it with emotions. You know, you have to feel a certain way. And when you stop feeling a certain way, well, then you stop loving. Man, it's really hard to follow what Jesus asks us to do if we have to feel a certain way to begin loving our enemies, isn't it? I want you to hang on here because we're going to sort of come full circle. But when you read through the New Testament and you read the word love, that word love is often, most often, associated with this idea that sort of separates it from emotion and concentrates on our actions. See, uh, you know, even though, even though Sherry has it easy, and she experiences that sort of warm, fuzzy feeling all the time, most of us in marriages, at a certain point, we have to choose to love the other person. We have to choose to serve them and to love them like Jesus loves the church, to take care of them and to provide for them, even when they're not making us happy that day. And if that's true in our most important relationships, it's got to be true in those thorn-in-the-side kind of relationships. When we think about our most difficult relationships, Jesus isn't asking you to go into the office the next day and have a warm, fuzzy experience with that guy who just bugs you all the time. He is asking you, hey, why don't you try bringing him a cup of coffee tomorrow? Why don't you try serving him in some way? In these most difficult relationships, why don't you take the lead in love? And maybe the first step, Jesus says, is to pray for even those who persecute you, who are actively acting in the opposite that Jesus is calling us to. Pray for them. You know, we don't have time to go in in depth into the power and the significance of prayer, but this has been my experience. Now, this is not to say that I always get this right, that I don't jump to choosing to retaliate first, all right? But when I have practiced this, I can tell you that when you pray for those people that bug you, you know, love follows. The more you pray, the more you love. And the more you love, the more you pray. And so maybe it's sort of a chicken and egg scenario, but as you begin to pray for those folks, it's really hard. It's really hard to choose to retaliate. You know, that, you know it, it becomes easier and easier to choose to act in love. And as that relationship begins to grow because you choose to take that first step, because you choose, despite the feelings inside, to act in love, then our attitude and our emotions can kind of follow that. Because we know that the heart matters in everything that Jesus says. And so Jesus isn't asking us to be sort of emotionless robots. He's not asking us to never get to know people and just to serve, you know, these functions of service for folks. We're designed for relationships. But if we begin in prayer, love will follow. And the more we love, the more we pray. And the deeper those relationships, I think, will eventually become. Jesus describes this as being perfect. Verse 48 says, So be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if, if any of this has stood out to you, it does for me. Hey, choose not to retaliate. 
What's more, I want you to love your enemies. And I'm already thinking, whoa, I, don't, I can't handle this, right? I am not this good a person. Well, this throws me over the edge. Be perfect. Oh, come on. Come on. It reminds me of a story that Jesus tells a little later in Matthew. He meets this rich uh, young guy. The scripture describes him as a rich young ruler. He's a successful young man. And he comes to Jesus and he asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Kind of the big question, right? And Jesus responds, well, you know, what does, what does the law say? You need to obey the commands. And so this guy is smart. He's successful. He's looked this, thought this through, and he says, well, which one? And Jesus begins to list some of those commands. And, and the guy said, well, I'm in, I've, I, I followed those. I'm doing it. But he, he wouldn't have come to Jesus if something wasn't missing, huh? And so he asks, what else do I need to do? And so Jesus responds in, in Matthew uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 21. Jesus answered, if, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. See, Jesus isn't saying when he says, I want you to be perfect in Matthew chapter 5. When he talks to this young man in Matthew chapter 19, we hear that word perfect and we think, man, I've got to check all these boxes. I've got to follow all these rules exactly. I have to be morally superior. This guy had been down that road and was still missing out. And Jesus doesn't want him to be morally perfect. He doesn't want him to check all the boxes and following all the rules. He wants him to be fully and maturely loving other people. And when Jesus asks us to love our enemies, he's not asking us to never think, man, I'd like to punch that guy in the face. Right? We're going to think it. We're going to think it. He's asking us to grab hold of that thought, to love that person more maturely and completely than we did the day before. Man, in that way, even even a goofball like me can be perfect. We can love more maturely. And we can love more completely. You know that uh, most famous villain of all time, Darth Vader? You watch the end of the movies there. Well, they're not the end anymore. They're sort of the beginning. But anyway, you get to Return of the Jedi, right? That last movie. And, and we get Darth Vader is unmasked. And man, when Darth Vader is unmasked, he is ugly. You know, I can't help but think about sort of what we're dealing with here. Because when you take off masks, I'm ugly, right? Because of all sinners, I'm the greatest for sure. You know, we are all in absolute need of a Savior. But when that mask comes off and Return of the Jedi and, and Luke, his son, has sort of rescued him because he keeps telling uh, Darth Vader, Darth Dad, there's good in you. Darth Dad, there's good in you. And the mask comes off, and, and Vader sort of steps out of the dark side, right? And into the light. In this goofy science fiction movie, we see this principle that, that, well, we can all experience. We can make a difference. We can be a positive influence in the lives of folks who, who men, we might even describe as an enemy. We can love more maturely and more completely. And I promise that even if that doesn't change, I think there's great power in that. But even if that doesn't change the outcome of that relationship, 
it will change you. It'll make you different. And just like, you know, Darth Vader kind of leaves the dark side, we can become more and more like Jesus Christ. Bless you, kittens. I thought I'd get to that.